everyone gets everything he wants. I wanted a mission. And for my sins, they gave me one. Brought it up to me like room service. Captain Willard, are you in there? Yeah, I'm It was a real choice mission. And when it was over, I'd never want another. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this week's edition of the Sunday Wire. Thank you for rejoining us. Before the break, uh, we were talking about some of the bigger issues surrounding the Julian Assange case. And we have a guest on the live link. He is a former CIA analyst and a senior investigator with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He is a CIA whistleblower. and He's now a journalist and a radio host of Loud and Clear on Sputnik Radio with Brian Becker. But he's also a columnist for Reader Supported News and a founding member for Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, uh, along with William Binney, Ray McGovern, and others. His name is John Kiriakou, and he's joining us on the live link right now. Hello, John. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to be with you, John. Uh, thank you for joining us. And as you can imagine, John, the Julian Assange story, uh, everybody has been following this story with great interest for a number of reasons. And the first question I'm going to ask, John, is I'm sure you've been imagining what might be going through Julian Assange's mind right now, because you've been on multiple sides of this issue as, as a journalist, as a whistleblower. You've been on the government and intelligence side as well. You've been in the, the correctional system on that side of the uh, of the wall as well. What can you imagine or some of the big things that he's had to face in, 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 say, the last couple of months right now? Well, to tell you the truth, the worst part of it is just not knowing what to expect. To me, that was by far the most difficult. Am I going to go to prison for a year, or am I going to go to prison for the rest of my life, or for something somewhere in the middle? You just, you literally have no idea what to expect. And in a case like this, where it's an Espionage Act case, but you're a journalist, and so this kind of case is unprecedented, uh, it makes it even that much worse, because you can't say, well, when this happened last time, this is what happened. Uh, it's never happened. And so you don't know what to expect, where to turn, whose advice to take. It's it's not knowing that's really the toughest. And right, right now, uh, where this case sits right now, John, Britain... I believe, wanted to make sort of motions to Sweden, and I'm sure this would be very convenient politically to offload this problem to Sweden, Britain not be, not wanting to be the country uh, to extradite Assange to mm-hmm. the United States. And lo and behold, a, a, a pretty surprising result came. Well, not surprising for some people that have looked deeply at this case, but the Swedish judge basically said he doesn't need to be uh, detained here in Sweden in order to be questioned, So, which was the case before as well. Uh, only previously that uh, extradition order in the European arrest warrant was was actually triggered. Uh, it was filed by a prosecutor and not a judge, which uh, Craig Murray, former British ambassador, pointed out. It was kind of a, 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 a problem of due process on the Swedish side. And maybe that European arrest warrant was in a way illegitimate. 
so that brings up a whole load of other questions. Right, right now, in terms of politically for, for Britain, it's going to be very, very difficult to have that on their record of handing him over for such a high profile precedent case with regards to freedom of the press. And then once he gets to America, first of all, uh, do you really think that the United States will be able to pull off these 17 indictments that have been the superseding indictments that, that came forward just a couple of weeks ago? Because it seems to me, John, that a lot of rights groups and advocacy groups have been fired up over this that were normally, it wasn't at the top of their priority list like the ACLU. But when it comes to the punch, do you really think they'll be able to pull this off on the U.S. side? I actually don't. I don't think they'll pull it off. I think that the Justice Department has bitten off far more than it can chew this time. Uh, and, and I'll tell you why. I think that the Justice Department got used to the mainstream propaganda from the likes of the Washington Post and MSNBC at all that Julian was not a journalist. He was not a publisher. He was a leaker. And um, he was a spy. He was probably working for the Russians. That was all nonsense. And now that that the worst case scenario for the media has come to pass, they've all reassessed their positions. The, the Washington Post was first. On the, on the day after the superseding indictment was issued, the Washington Post editorial board wrote an editorial saying that Julian was indeed a journalist, he was indeed a publisher, and that while they may not like him, um, he has the same rights and protections that any journalist would have. Well, that's a 180-degree difference from what they were saying just six, six weeks earlier, when they were saying that he was not a journalist, he ought to be prosecuted, uh, he's probably responsible for giving us Donald Trump, and all the other, uh, all the other, like I said, nonsense that the mainstream media had been spouting. Another example that I like to point to is Rachel Maddow at MSNBC. I think Rachel Maddow is one of the just most awful excuses for, for a journalist that's, that's on cable news today. Um, she's the, the very textbook definition of a, of a neoliberal activist, that she's a leftist when, when it suits, uh, but when it comes to uh, politics, especially as it relates to Donald Trump, whatever Donald Trump stands for, she jumps on the opposite side just because that's the way she is. Well, that's that's not fairness. That's not being a real journalist. Again, all she did was criticize, criticize, criticize Julian for giving us Donald Trump, Julian for spying on Hillary Clinton, Julian for, for stealing from the DNC. And then as soon as that superseding indictment was issued, she flipped sides. And she said, oh, well, we have to protect Julian Assange. Uh, this is uh, too much. This hits at freedom of the press and freedom of speech, and we have to do something. So I think that the Justice Department didn't expect that kind of a reaction from the mainstream media, because until that superseding indictment was issued, the media was behind the Justice Department on this. And now it's all changed. Now, people watch that kind of news. This is a very well-informed town. And um, we're talking about the Eastern District of Virginia. There's going to be a very well-informed jury. And I think where the prosecution just assumed that the jury would fall into place like every other jury does for them, 
they were wrong about this. You, you mentioned the, the Eastern District of Virginia there, that district court. So you've got firsthand experience with this particular court. And there's a lot of concerns, uh, certainly on, on this side of the Atlantic in Britain, that Julian Assange would not get a fair hearing or a fair trial in this particular court because of the record of this court and likely the judge, uh, Leona Brinkema, who would most likely be, be hearing this uh, particular yes. case. So um, you, you were involved. I think they, they had a closed classified information procedures hearing, I think, for your case. But w- would they do the same with Julian Assange? And, and how would that play in, in, in a jury setting? Yes, they, they will. Um, what you're talking about is called SIPA, the control the Classified Information Protection Act. So what happens is the Justice Department will invoke SIPA, and when it comes time for substantive hearings in this court, they will um, clear the courtroom so that only Julian and his attorneys, the prosecutors, the judge, the clerk, and the bailiff are allowed in the courtroom. If it's a jury trial, the jurors will be allowed in the courtroom. The jurors will all have security clearances. The doors will be sealed. And they will be duct taped around the edges of the doors. Uh, the windows will be covered with plastic sheeting, and that will be duct taped around the windows so that no one can accidentally hear information that may be classified. So, what they also do is if the Justice Department intends to discuss classified issues, and there are certain classified words or programs, they make up a gibberish word or they make up a word that doesn't make sense in the context of the case, and they replace a classified word with the gibberish word. So, for example, if, in my case, the torture program was classified, they wouldn't call it the torture program. They would call it the, you know, uh, the rugby program or the ZARF program Mm -hmm. or whatever. Uh, And that's... That's sort of under the guise of keeping the secret things secret. That is very, very confusing to a jury, and it's also very prejudicial because jurors can't help but to conclude that, wait a minute, if the, if these words are so sensitive that we're not even allowed to speak or to hear the words, then he must be guilty because the Justice Department wouldn't be masking the words if the words didn't need to be protected. So this whole notion of a SIPA hearing is is prejudicial just by its very nature. Now, besides that, I have some specific beefs with the Eastern District of Virginia, and especially with Judge Leonie Brinkema. Judge Brinkema has a reputation as a hanging judge. She's a former federal prosecutor. Uh, she was a Reagan appointee to the federal bench. She reserves all national security cases for herself. And she has never acquitted a single defendant in a national security case ever. And so I would have to say, I, you know, with that in mind, that Julian's chances of a fair trial, let alone an acquittal, are virtually nil. Mm. Well, you know, may I add one thing to that as well? Sure. You have to look at the geography of the Eastern Dist- District of Virginia, too, especially the Alexandria Division. A jury consultant told me uh, near the tail end of my case that that anybody in a national security case would have to be a fool to go to trial because the jury is going to be made up of, of people from or people who have relatives from the CIA, the FBI, 
NSA, the Pentagon, the Department of Homeland Security, or intelligence community contractors. That's where they live. They live here in in the Eastern District of Virginia. You know, they've got to live somewhere. And when the CIA is right here, and DHS is right here, and all these Beltway bandits are, and the Pentagon is right here, that's where the jury pool comes from. And so he just doesn't have a chance. So that that would be a very different kind of scenario than if it were in Baltimore or exactly if it were in Richmond Baltimore or or you know Minneapolis or or Buffalo or anywhere else. The first thing that I would do, were I one of Julian's attorneys, is ask for a change of venue. And if it's denied, and it'll be denied because she's denied other requests for changes of venue, I would appeal it to the Circuit Court of Appeals. This is just patently unfair. And, and another big feature in these indictments, uh, John, which you, you also be familiar with uh, from your case as well, is the issue of like revealing IDs or and this would fall under the Intelligence Identities Protection Act of 19, right. 1982. And this is one of the big features in the indictments that uh, Julian Assange put and, and, and then Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, put uh, agents in the field at risk, compromised. Uh, Actually, no, if I could interrupt you. Sure. That's a red herring. That's being thrown out there by the prosecution. Julian has not been charged with violating the Intelligence Identities Protection Act because no identities of any CIA officers were revealed. They throw that out there to try to pollute the jury pool. What was revealed, the, the, the identities that were revealed were people who were engaged in friendly conversations with U.S. diplomats. Now, what happens in a case like like this is when when a State Department officer goes to lunch, let's say, with somebody or goes to have a meeting with somebody, when the meeting is over, the lunch is over, they go back to their embassy and they write a cable to the State Department and they say, today I had lunch with John Smith. And then in parentheses, they say, please protect. And this is what John Smith told me. Well, they say, please protect, because maybe John Smith criticized his own government. Or maybe John Smith said something that's a little bit um, controversial. Or maybe he has spoken out of school. That does not make him an agent of the U.S. government. First of all, he's not a paid agent. Secondly, he's not an employee. He's just a guy who had lunch or a meeting with a U.S. diplomat. So the please protect is a nicety. It's not a legal requirement. Mm-hmm. So with with Julian and WikiLeaks releasing the names of of those people that's embarrassing but it's not illegal and you know you hear a lot this other red herring about putting people's lives in danger they said that about tom drake they said that about ed snowden they said that about me and it's never true they always back off And we already know from a former director of the National Security Agency that no lives were put in danger with these revelations. And uh, there was no fallout for anyone whose identity was revealed in these documents. That's just another one of these lies that the Justice Department wants a potential jury to believe. 
In the trial of Manning, the, uh, the government had multiple opportunities to to sort of prove that, and at no point did they ever actually give any examples uh, where that was the case. Instead, they they came up with a lot of hypotheticals, basically of this this could this sort of activity by a journalist could put an agent in danger, and it's very dangerous, etc., to national security to the individuals. But they didn't actually give any specific examples, although they had ample opportunity many times to do that back during that trial so there's no new information here but yet you you read the language of the indictments and they've sort of ratcheted up again they've recycled it this accusation again and and that's one of the big things i think that they're they're hanging their uh their their case on one of those hooks that uh doesn't seem to be very stable well you are absolutely right that is that's the the trick that the Justice Department tries to play. You know, they did that in my case as well. When they write an indictment, or what they call a federal information, they throw in the kitchen sink, and they make the wildest accusations they can come up with, knowing that they don't have to prove it. So when I when I first took um, my plea, uh, I took this plea to a, to a reduced charge, and uh, we were supposed to negotiate with the Justice Department on the final language in the plea. Well, the language was pretty clear. It, it only took but a paragraph, but they insisted on putting all this unprovable and unproven information in there that I went public not because I was a whistleblower, but because I was trying to build a consulting business. Now, where in the world they found that, I have no idea. Or um, I liked to see myself on television. So they insisted on keeping all this nonsense in. Well, when the judge asked me if I um, had taken the plea of my own Uh, free will? I said, yes. And she said, did I have anything to say? And I said, yeah. I said, this thing is full of lies, bald-faced lies that the prosecution put in that I cannot defend myself from. And I said, if somebody were to read this thing, they they would think that I was some sort of an arch criminal. And she chuckled and she said, well, that's just what we call window dressing. And I said, be that as it may, Your Honor, it's patently unfair. And she said, well, That's the system we have, so tough luck. And the same thing is happening right now to Julian, where they've got got these accusations of, of criminal offenses, and then they just dump rumor and innuendo on top of it just to make them look bad, not for any other reason. Back to your comment about the Department of Justice and how they sort of miss, uh, miscalculated uh, what might be the public or the media reaction and that, that the public and the media might have swallowed every bit of propaganda or every bit of defamation or smear about Assange over the last few years to the point where there would be no sympathy or support. Uh, and, and then stacking it high, the Russian, the Russian indictments to the sort of 15 or 16, I can't remember, Russian trolls from the St. Petersburg Agency. Uh, these, I would call those like phantom indictments because there's no chance that any of those right. Russians are going to come to the U.S. to, to, to face those, those accusations in a U.S. Well, court. And, and in fact, and in fact, when, when several of those uh, Russians hired a Washington law firm and the attorney went to court and asked for discovery, the prosecutor said, whoa, we're not ready to give discovery because they never expected these guys to come in and defend themselves. See, this is all fake. It's all window dressing. 
It's all a way for the Justice Department to point fingers and make wild accusations without having to to actually prove that somebody did something. So, so they know in in a way they've they're sort of also betting that uh, in, in many cases that the defendant won't actually voluntarily anyway come to the U.S. Exactly to, right to face a court. So it's kind of a fiat force or a, a, in absentia, if you know what I mean. There is there's actually a thing uh, called the fugitive disentitlement doctrine. And that basically says that if, if a defendant fled U.S. jurisdiction or whatever, a court is not obligated to rule on that fleeing defendant's petition for relief. So basically, um, Assange is in a very unique position. It could be, John, that he might not get if he doesn't get to the U.S., but these charges, these indictments that are completely overblown are just hanging there. And, and they're not just hanging over Julian Assange's neck, but basically all journalists. And, and is this is this a type of strategy by the United States, possibly? Or, or because it, it doesn't seem like they would want to put the First Amendment on trial uh, in, in the U.S. It's all well and good now. But when it actually comes to the crunch. That's a yeah. really tough thing for any Supreme Court justice to rule on, I think. Oh, yeah. And, you know, one of the things, too, that I think is very important, in, in the event that Julian is actually convicted, which would be a terrible, terrible thing, he would be one of the very, very few people in American history withstanding to challenge the constitutionality of the Espionage Act. Many of us believe that the Espionage Act is unconstitutionally broad, Uh, It was written in 1917 to combat German saboteurs during the First World War. It has never been updated. It's never been clarified. It doesn't even mention the words classified information because the classification system wasn't even invented until the 1950s. And so, you know, it says very simply that a person shall be guilty of espionage if he provides national defense information to any person not entitled to receive it. Well, that's what journalists from the Washington Post and the New York Times do every single day. And so unless we actually figure out how to handle this Espionage Act, or even if it's legal in the first place, um, we have to wait until somebody challenges it and wait until the Supreme Court rules. Yes. So as as bad as the situation is, and it certainly is bad on the surface, um, there is an opportunity uh, down the road, if it did come to that, that this actually could, you know, it, it could be the first fair challenge to what a lot of people will call an antiquated uh, law um, that's on the U.S. books that is, is sort of out of time, basically, a, a, a century out of time, and is still being used um, in a very vague way, real arbitrary way, this particular act. It, like you said, it's so broad. but It really is. Yeah. Now, the, fi- the final thing, the point uh, I want to get your uh, thoughts on, John, is there's there was a really disturbing uh, incident that happened this past week in Australia where the Australian Federal Police basically raided the home yes. of a News Corp journalist who, I guess, was investigating state spying, basically, spying on its own citizens or surveillance, very similar to the NSA Snowden issue uh, in the U.S., and also raided the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's headquarters in Sydney. And they were working on, or this had to do with an old report, actually, with regards to Afghanistan and special forces and the similar sort of things that WikiLeaks 
would have been exposing. Is it possible that this particular case uh, with WikiLeaks right now, because it doesn't look very good right now for Julian Assange and WikiLeaks at the moment, things could the, the tide could turn possibly, but is it possible that more authoritarian forces within governments could be quite confident right now that this is a good time to start pressuring journalists to sort of gain ground against the media? I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that uh, that the forces of uh, anti-transparency are probably ascendant right now. This this event in Australia was an utter outrage. What what these journalists, there were two journalists and the news director were accused of doing was using defense ministry documents to do a story about war crimes that were committed by Australian special forces units in Afghanistan. So so the journalists were reporting on war crimes. Uh, they should have been celebrated, uh, not harassed. And so not only was the Australian Broadcasting Corporation headquarters raided, but also the home of one of these journalists was raided. And this is such a clear outrage to me. I'm shocked that people in Australia are not in the streets. But, you know, it just goes to show you that that oftentimes people are not as progressive as we give them credit for being. They're not as as freedom-loving as we give them credit for being. To me, this is such an an obvious violation of just the most basic freedoms, Western freedoms, that uh, I, I'm speechless just thinking of, of why there hasn't been a, a response. Look at the case. Uh, the last thing I'll just throw in here, because you just reminded me of something, uh, John. The, this There's a soldier, uh, U.S., I believe he's a f- former Navy SEAL from Iraq. His name's Eddie Gallagher. And the the media was kind of buzzing with rumors that Donald Trump uh, w- would like to pardon this soldier. Yeah. And he, he was I mean, even his own CEOs and uh, people who served them said he was absolutely nuts, killed a lot of civilians, posed with dead bodies, stabbed somebody who was wounded, you know, basically finishing them off. I mean, yes. it's really gr- grim, this story. And even the even the rumor that he's being considered for a pardon, and you you think about the inversion of this that WikiLeaks and Manning were exposing those very things, and they are both uh, being held in detention right now with their fates completely uncertain. It's it's almost it's amazing uh, to look at the contrast of that, and it I don't know it's, it's incredible it's truly incredible you know I I'm I consider myself to be a patriot. And I think uh, I think most Americans do. I've I've always maintained that the Republican Party and the conservative movement in this country do not have a monopoly on patriotism, uh, and it just seems to me logical and and necessary that that you call a spade a spade, and and if you if if you see a war crime or a crime against humanity, then by God, that's a war crime. It's a crime against humanity. It's something to be punished not something to be celebrated. And when the President of the United States uh, goes on, on national uh, television and says that he's considering pardoning somebody who's pretty clearly and obviously a war criminal just because he's trying to show his own patriotism, misguided patriotism in my view, then we've, we've got a serious problem in this country. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And I think a lot of people share those concerns 
John, a lot of people on both sides of the Atlantic as well. And uh, lo- looking at this case and how things are going to unfold, very important couple weeks in front of us. And uh, we'll be looking at that. As, of course, the important extradition hearing uh, this uh, week uh, in London, Julian Assange for U.S. extradition. So we'll be keeping a close eye on that. We'll also be on the ground there reporting about that uh, to our listeners and people at 21stCenturyWire.com. But lastly, John, we just want to thank you very much uh, for your time uh, and also for your your dedication and and hard work and and getting these types of stories out to your audience. Thank you so much for the support. I appreciate that. And you can catch John Kariaku on Loud and Clear on Sputnik Radio with uh, Brian Becker uh, and also his work on reader-supported news. He's a columnist there. And uh, we'll be right back after these messages on the other side with more news and analysis. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. Stay right there. <laughs> 